Caleb. This is the Air of Grievances podcast. Today I have an interview with my father, a little Pop Goes the Doctrine episode for you. Uh, I'm going to start it out with a video that we watched that kind of sparked our conversation, and then we move on into talking about uh, a website that my dad has set up. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, play some clips from that video, and then we'll get right into the discussion. Sufi saying that Sufism was at first heartache, only later it became something to talk about. Because, as I have mentioned, Sufism is about this love affair with God that begins within the heart and ends within the heart. But there are stages on this journey, stages on the path of love that the wayfarer, the traveler on the path of love, must go through. And although for each of us this journey is totally unique, is totally individual, because we are each totally unique, we are each a unique note in the symphony of life, in the symphony of souls. At the same time, we all pass through stages on this journey, on this journey of no return, on this journey that begins with the homesickness of the heart. Sufism was at first heartache. And this is how for many people the path begins with this pain within the heart. The Sufis call it long. Though for some it begins more as a discontent. For some reason life no longer fulfills them in its form to which they have become accustomed. Their everyday life is no longer enough, and they don't know why, and they begin to look. They look for a spiritual path, they look for a teacher, they look within themselves, because something is stirring, something is stirring deep beneath the surface. And this is what the Sufis call the moment of Tauba, or the turning of the heart. It is the moment in the incarnation when the higher self and that divine part of our own being sends a message to the human being saying it's time to go home. It's time to go back to where you belong. It's time to discover what you really are, to make this great adventure. And many people brush it aside. The last thing is they want is to be disturbed, to be distracted from their outer goals, their outer achievements, to be taken into the vulnerability is within them, into the vulnerability of their heart, into the pain of the heart. But if the soul wants you to go home, it creates within your heart this love, this pain of separation, which is the moment really when the beloved looks into the heart of his lover and infuses it with divine love. He makes you remember that somewhere before the beginning of time, you will walk with him. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Pops, as always. You betcha. 
Cool. So um, the past few nights, we've been kind of in conversation casually talking about uh, like pain and its role in our existence and um, just kind of the theological applications of that. And I thought that some of your input was really, really interesting. I was wondering if, if there's anything you want to elaborate on or kind of introduce the listener to the concept that you were mentioning. Yeah. Um, the purpose of life is found in processing pain. What I found uh, really interesting is when you heard that, it hit kind of guttural level resonance and it was maybe for different reasons than I was putting it out there. Mm. So I'm always trying to make sense of life mm-hmm. and, and bring order to chaos. Right. And uh, I mean, that's my life. I'm you know, professionally a process engineer. And uh, so I was I'm fascinated with these discussions. I put it out there and then I hear you talk to it and I go, wow, I didn't even see that angle. So I like, interesting. I like, okay. Your, your initial thoughts, go ahead. Okay. No, yeah, no, I was just trying to recall that conversation specifically. And it, it seemed like, I guess, my reactions were more emotional. And honestly, I had some uh, materials on my head that were really fresh that seemed to kind of parallel with what you were talking about. Um, one, that sounds like a very, almost like a doppelganger of a Buddhist philosophy. You know, Buddhism would say life is pain. And not to get you depressed, but just to kind of, these are the facts, man. You know, life, you can sit down in a chair and you're comfortable, but how long is it going to be before you feel uncomfortable and you have to reposition or stand up, you know, or something like that? That pain and suffering, you know, is just kind of part of our existence and it's just something that we kind of have to get used to. Do you see there being a release from this pain or this experience of pain or do you see that just kind of as a, uh, a hand that we were dealt? Uh, I see both. I'm, uh, for example, your illustration of, okay, I'm uncomfortable, I'm going to move. Um, if someone sat there and said, well, I'm uncomfortable, and that's the way it should be, uh, they would never move. So, in, And I'm saying, okay, well, we achieve something not just by relieving the pain, but by processing and, and um, realizing something, increasing our awareness through dealing with the pain, not just sitting there and taking it and not just saying, oh, I need to eliminate mm. all pain, but go, okay, there, good. I felt some pain. Let's see what was going on with that. <laughs> like a moment by moment sort of analysis and, and, and trying to amend, you know, your, your behaviors and stuff to accommodate that or more just kind of as a generally getting rid of it or avoiding situations where that would pop up. Uh, yeah, that's really good because I see it both that, when we're not dealing with it, let me define it more, but uh, then we pile up this stuff, or like it could be stuffing emotions or just not knowing how to deal with something and having trauma. Uh, so that mm. piles up in the brain somewhere, and then we got to come out and go, okay, I got this overheated pathway, neurological pathway. I need to deal with something going on in there, and then we process it in terms of the past. And I think also walking into a new situation, go, oh, I'm feeling a conflict. Let's work out this conflict immediately so I don't mm. stuff my emotions and have that to process later. Okay, interesting. Cool. Um, something else that, that kind of reminds me of is in that video that you showed me, which was uh, just a, a quick little snippet about uh, Sufism, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, but I thought it was a really great video. I really, really loved it. Well, here, I really like this poll quote. This is, a, this is my paraphrase. It says, We are unique journeyers, each totally unique. 
we are a note in a symphony. Hmm. Both pass through stages in this journey. It is a journey of no return. It begins with homesickness of heart. And I like that a lot because there's there is almost that kind of, you know, Taoist, Buddhist sort of a uh, a vibe there in life being a journey and that kind of being satisfied with your dissatisfaction almost. Mm. But then it did also remind me of the pyro theology, the radical theology stance that what we're all seeking in life is oceanic oneness is the term that they use, which means being rejoined with the oneness of the universe. And as children, we experience that in our mother's wombs. We're totally content. We're not even an us. We're not separate. We're part of the mother. And so we're totally content, fed. We're super warm. Everything's fine. We're, we're a part of a bigger thing around us. And then in the act of being born, we experience individualism. We're torn apart from that which we thought we were part of. We're hungry. We're learning how to breathe, literally. And the, the philosophy there is that we're constantly pursuing that oneness. Sex is obviously maybe one of the best answers is because you're, it's like you're, you may sound vulgar, but you're, you're trying to crawl back in. You're trying to regain that oneness to, to become one, like they say in marriage, to be merged, you know, one flesh sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and yeah. so, you know, Dr. Peter Rollins uh, theorizes that that is the drive to try to achieve that oneness. And, you know, the Christian hope would be that we do achieve that oneness after death, but here in life, that's just such a driving force and such an, a force that is near impossible to actually obtain. Mm. That's so funny, too, that um, it, it, you know, I had a smile when you said, as we're crawling back in, that I see beautiful design and humor from our Creator that that's we can smile. <laughs> yeah you know that's what's going on here and and it's more than that it's it's you know it's like it's super everything. duper freudian on, on another uh, level sort of thing of course, yeah you know there's a general revelation of truth and so freud discovered this truism um and then later folks have you know modified it pointing the oneness is described in genesis from the beginning yes you know both historically in my opinion and metaphorically that we're in oneness it's called Eden, and then we go, oops, we mess up. Okay, we're kicked out. We, we leave the oneness. We're in this dysfunctional conflict, not just a normal work a day. I mean, Adam was given work. He said, you know, be fruitful, multiply, go and fill the earth and subdue it. He was given a mission, and I don't think the mission ever changed just because mm. we you know, lost the oneness, the place where we, and if I read the span of ancient history correctly, it's like, well, we're supposed to be here between 600 and 900 years, taking it kind of easy, but still working and, and advancing. And then, boom, okay, that didn't work. And then, oh, we get it even worse, and there's the flood. And now, okay, from now on, you might live 70 to 100 years, and we're going to get a lot of the pain really quickly, not just mm. about. It's actually the same mission and the you know, beauty of the creation all mixed in, and it agrees with Buddhism, and I'm, like you said at the beginning, it's almost like, I don't know how you want to say it, it goes different direction with it, or it uh, carries it further. I'm not sure how you'd say that. Oh, yeah. Um, 
it, it acknowledges the same pretenses of our existence. That there is pain, there is discontent. People don't even know why they feel so empty. And then it says, because something is missing, we must look for a path. We must look for a teacher throughout all this chaos around us. Mm-hmm. And it, I like this phrasing because uh, the way that the gentleman in the video said, the native um, man who practices uh, Sufism, said that it's time to go home, discover who you are. Mm-hmm. Man is distracted by goals, achievements... Scared to take the journey inward. Before the beginning of time, we were one with two or more. And I I wonder if that before the beginning of time, before we were born, we were one. And I wonder if that refers to the ground of being to Brahman, to God. Um, if, if that's specifically referring to we were one and we were we will return to being one, this kind of almost you know cosmic conscious thing to kind of put into new age terms but um i just it seemed more hopeful more of a focus on where we came from where we're going um i like reincarnation i didn't see any of that in there just in that short video clip that you shared but it, it, yeah it, there's a hope in there and i like when he uses the phrase about going home because something is missing so we want to go home and but to him going home isn't a location, it is an inward looking and arriving at your inward home to come to terms and at peace with who you are. Mm-hmm. Sort of thing. And at that point, when it got toward the end of that, I saw it as an introduction, carrying us to the threshold and then leaving us at the threshold, which I had expected them to say, it's a separation anxiety where a child or even an animal, any mammal, you know, is away from the pack and they're not, they're feeling insecure. They're in this anxiety of separation. And so we're saying, oh, that for me is the creator separation, not knowing who I am, not knowing my creator, not being, feeling taken care of in a universal sense. Yeah. I think of that as God, the mother, you know, the God, Mm -hmm. the provider, God, the, Mm -hmm. the nourisher. Einstein even said, you know, one of the first things you must decide, is the universe a, um, what do you say, nice place to be, good place to be, welcoming place to be? And so we're in this tension of, uh, I don't think the world's a good place to be, and then, oh, okay, now we're in a good place. We just relax. Oh, I saw something fascinating this week, too, about getting to that relaxed state that, you know, feeling everything's okay, or as they say in the Bible, you know, the righteous live by faith, just feeling it's okay that that then enables creativity and altruism. And I can show you the article. Um, it, it said, in, in ancient times, we experienced that through religion, and, and more recently, people often experience it through some grand form of art, or they look at the Grand Canyon, or somehow through nature. Mm, and I would add, you know, through even being in a theater, a movie, having this uh, kind of cathartic experience. So you go, wow, that's it. And then they measured scientifically and said, People who, after they've had that awe, as the author says it, then they have more willingness to help other people. They test it, like drop a bunch of pens, and they count how many pens that you would help the other person pick up before you walked mm. away. And wow. so, yeah, as soon as they view something beautiful and awe-inspiring, then they turn around and go, oh, I'm going to help other people. It's fascinating. And, and it goes back to what you're saying. They see it as needing a teacher. And then for me, yeah, so as a um, student of Christ and follower of Christ, 
I sense that he is what he said, which is the bread of heaven. I have to see him doing good things. I go, oh, ah, um, hey, you know, something occurred to me this morning, too, that uh, there's a proverb that says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. I think we need to get a translation for our generation that goes, uh, let's let's just make— Yeah, that's been in my heart this past week, the whole Uh, fear of the Lord thing, because I'm just praying— to all of the gods, to Zeus, Zeus is up there up top. I'm praying that that has to be some sort of bizarre mistranslation because fear, like if that's what it's supposed to mean, I think I'm out. I mean, it's it's like the fear of the Lord. That sounds like you're scared of the dad who's going to beat you, who is honestly quite similar to the 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 god the god of many schools of thought, like the god is. This punisher waiting to beat you. Oh, good thing my son got in the way so that my stick didn't whack you upside the top of the head sort of mm. thing. But, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, please, no, please exactly. continue. That's where I was going that, uh, okay, I we don't walk around saying, oh, fear of the Lord. That's not normal for language. That's not common language. So I would say what I'm feeling or sensing or applying from that is reverence for the holy is the first step to being wise or less poetically saying, you know, being wise and good at what you do begins with reverent respect for good authority greater than yourself. Mm. You know, it's a humility like, oh, I know, you know, self-awareness is the first step. Maybe that'd be a way to say it. Self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know I'm a flawed human who doesn't get it all the time. And uh, therefore now that's the same thing, 12 steps. The first step is, you know, admit Yes. Um, you know, be aware and acknowledge. Yeah. Oh, wow! I'm I'm not all good. I'm not all. Right. I don't have all authority. I'm not all powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? That reminds me kind of a like Catholic confession. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Mm-hmm. I mean, my name is Caleb. I'm an addict. Mm-hmm. It has been six months since my last confession, sort of thing. You know, you, that kind of element there, to where you're completely honest. You let them know what you did wrong, and you're just it's, I. I wish church were so much more like it in the aspects of how accepting, you know, and how loving and how once you're back, it's like, hey, man, at least you're back. So when you build your church or a church and set it up the way that someone interacts by showing up, dressing up and showing up Mm -hmm. and being presented a sermon and music and all is a much different experience than what we would see with Christ with his 12 disciples and interacting and right. Yeah. That's a great point. And there, the form is there and I'm glad you said before, okay, we don't have to throw out the whole church, but we got to bring it back to life. And sure. There's a place, you know, where Christ stood up and gave the sermon on the Mount and it was to the big crowds. And then they also have places for small groups and that's seen revival, I think. And yet there's not what I, have been trained to do in industry good practices in understanding, let's understand our customer and not get afraid of saying, okay, those who are coming are the audience and the customer. And then there are people that's build this community by understanding them. I think you and I have said before, let's just not put a buffet out there or give them a show. You know, let's say, Hey, where are you? How are you doing? And so in the small group confines, those who are willing to, to be offered, I think, a place to go and have what you've described as, all right, hey, what's going on with you? What's going on with you? And I've 
course, I've seen that in Man of the Cross. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Yeah, the emphasis on on small groups, and uh, I think governance has a place, but at the same time, I like less and less set in stone doctrine. I would rather go to a small group where every single person has a totally different take on every bit of scripture or discussion that we yeah. get into. I find it more interesting, um, call it postmodern, but it it broadens my worldview and my point of view and my, my horizons that way. And um, so to me, yeah, that's it's really important to have a small group. I don't think Nate would mind me mentioning, I, I particularly enjoyed the small group that he and I did together at the home church there back in uh, Kansas City where you guys go. Um Whenever we went, and there was a couple Catholic girls, there was me, the kind of kind of crazy. Uh, at that time, I was I was a lot more in my materialist sort of uh, philosophy and existentialist, but you know, still I retain some of that today. But I, I was I was a crazy you know, agnostic Christian guy, and then there was Nate, who's just straight up non apologetically atheist. Just like we go around introducing ourselves, everyone's being all uh-huh. smiling and happy. And he's like. I'm Nate. I'm an atheist, you know, sort of thing. But it was it was refreshing though to have all those different perspectives. And there's something. There's a reason that everyone wants to be mm-hmm. there. And it was all over the board. It was across the board. Um, but it's almost like there's more danger in a group of people all think alike who can maybe get a snowball rolling that shouldn't be rolling. You know, that's how you get kind of. That's how you end up with a bunch of snake handler churches or something like something like that. Yeah, no kidding. What's missing, I think, in small groups. Uh, in my experience, is the church, the Lord leadership of a church, doesn't know the ideal state and what that looks like. Like Psalms says, you know, the Lord places the lonely in families. Well, to me, the, doing the work of the Lord is to place people in a family like you're describing, variety of views, and put them there and say, okay, we're going to talk about this. We're going to go around and say where you are. Right. Then we're going to respectfully have a moderator who does even similar to these discussions. Exactly right, right. Yeah. This is a micro example, but I think it kind of exemplifies the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a discussion about Christ's final ascension, and everyone was, everyone was just kind of nodding their heads, going along. And I was like, you know, and I was a Christian. I identified as Christian, and um, I I was like so. This dude just floats up through this, you know, the sky through the clouds, and like, what does he burn up in the atmosphere? Or does he keep going? Does he materialize? Like, what's going on here? And they just kind of all take it as for granted. And then on the other extreme, Nate is sitting there just laughing, shaking his. I was genuinely asking a question, you know, and but over there, Nate, Nate's just you know cracking up. It just kind of shows you. In that little family unit, we have all these different characters and different takes on things, but we're united by an interest in the Bible and an interest in studying Christ, you know, so. Yeah, it's so fascinating. When you've done these webcasts and had your interviewed your brothers, especially Nick, and there you were, these two absolute polar opposites <laughs> on an issue and talking in what is you know traditionally called civil society oh that's how you feel here's how i feel (laughs) it's this respect you know you heard that Uh, one that was amazing yeah really i'm flattered yeah wow what's it gonna do now (laughs) now, (laughs) it puts it out there you go 
okay how can i respond respectfully you know, that was good. <laughs> that's flattering dad thank you yeah. that's really that's funny to me that you listened to that and then mm-hmm. kind of hit the nail on the head there and then did you hear the the clip afterwards that i played he was like i really want you to play this and it yeah. was like straight up a mirror of our conversation it was like the exact same thing <laughs> like yeah. he got all his rhetoric from one place and i'm just like yeah kind of befuddled <laughs> by it yeah, and he's gotten in trouble at schools. We've heard because um, some teachers will hear him say stuff and not know if he's joking or not knowing that he has respect for other people. He's a nationalist. He's a right winger, and yeah, it's a fine line, though, pops. Yeah, it is. And he kicked crosses and we talked to him like, okay, what you just said, you know how that's heard, right? Well, that's not how I am. Well, that's how it's heard. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of ties into the whole. Uh... I don't want to get too deep into it, but the the Minnesota nice thing, mm-hmm. you know, how, how your intent and what you say and then how it's received. There's a place where they lay things out to you. you know, can we talk about it? I'm going to go there. <laughs> no offense to any Minnesotans. I love you guys. I live with you guys. I moved from the warm climate of Kentucky and the, the Midwest to come here and live with you guys. But I got to say, this is hilarious. Last night after work, I was getting cut. I just very subtly, I didn't even say Minnesota nice. I said, I'm trying to to get my rhythm here with, with the whole cultural difference as far as, you know, how you express niceness and how you're polite and things like that. And she looked at me and gave me this, this knowing look because she's from Chicago, actually. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, you mean Minnesota passive aggressive? Mm-hmm. And no offense to you, Dad, because you're from Duluth. Hey. But I just lost it because that's exactly, I think... Not in front of you know any any native Minnesotans, but I, I've used that phrase before. That this is just this isn't Minnesota nice. This is just people being very very proud. Yeah. white people yeah. being very very passive aggressive. Exactly, we overcome our own culture, I suppose. And there's some irony in me marrying a person who's from Virginia, you know, has a southern mm. and a mm-hmm. very kind of almost combative family interaction. And I admired that and kind of was attracted to it. And it's been. Just 32 years of learning. Okay, here's what I'm going to be competitive. <laughs> right, and right. Not, not not get back and pass aggressive because they didn't understand the rules. Right, the rules there and kind of like you know what is sacred culturally is you don't be a salesperson. Right, mm. you don't trust sales because they're there to hear you mm. and then manipulate. And so if you say so, for example, you know, the guys that hang out and had a cigar on Thursday, they're they're passive. And the boss, the guy who relocated her family out here, um, it will say something and either you pick it up or you don't. When they decide they're going to have a locker in the humidor, and they come and say, all right, here's the deal, Greg. You pay this much and join the humidor and da-da-da-da-da. And you, are you joining or not? They didn't say that. They would just talk about it and see if I'd jump out. Oh, hey, I'd like to join too. I just never said anything, right? So I, then I became a non-humidor member, and I'm like an ancillary when I show up. I, oh, no. I only mean, show up like half the time, but it'll be clear that he'll turn to the click, you know, the inside for the guy. All right, hey, you want a scar? You want a scar? And then there's me. I go get my own thing come back. But that is similar. It made me think of what you've been discussing with the culture in Minnesota is you never go directly and say, here's the deal. Do you want it or not? Okay. See, that's what I do. Mm. That, that's going to be a hard uh, habit to break there. Yeah. And like I said, I was attracted even to marrying someone from whom that 
I didn't have to practice just for super carefulness. Yeah, it's exhausting I, the practice. I'll tell you that. Yeah, and you know, and don't. That's what I'm saying. Don't feel like you have to be there, but get to a place that you understand it, and they understand you, and you're not that way. Right, right, right. And it's funny. Last night, I actually met a couple of natives who, to their friends, are like shockingly direct and honest. Mm-hmm. Almost come across like assholes. Mm-hmm. And um, I think instinctively, after they said something to me that was rather dickish, they're like, "Sorry about that." And I was like, "No, no, no. You're speaking my language right now." <laughs> I was God. like, "I am the most direct person that that mm-hmm. I know." So <laughs> this is so refreshing right now. Someone like ribbing me and kind of te- treating me like an asshole. Like I like that. That's how I communicate, and that's <laughs> how you know that you know. As long as the right look is in their eyes, that's how you know that uh, you're on somebody's team there. Yeah. They like you. And yeah, so one of the other rules is you, you you cut yourself down and make fun of yourself. You never cut other people and make fun of them. And um, oh, hey, can I ask you this? Yeah, please. What if I saw this on TV the other day and it made me think of Minnesota Nice? What if there's something that's really annoying you about somebody else, and you say, mm-hmm. you know, something you kind of just offhandedly you say like a compliment. I think we're kind of similar. You remind, you remind me of myself actually. Like, oh yeah, really? And I was like, yeah. Uh, I, 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 you know, sometimes I wonder why people get so annoyed when I smack my gum so loudly. It's like, what's the big deal? And is that a, is that a, <laughs> is that a, a swing and a miss, or am I anywhere close yeah. to getting the Minnesota nice thing to where it's kind of self-deprecating? Like, I hate it when people tell me to stop smacking my gum, but at the right. same time, you started it by saying you remind me of myself. Yeah, I think we're moving toward that archetypical ideal that every culture needs redemption. So, in my most recent thought on that, I. Like you thought about a lot, is saying sometimes something it just seems selfish or inconsiderate. And I go, hey, that's okay. You can be that way, and then say whatever they just did. And they go, oh, you're accepting me, but you're also pointing out that I was just a dick. <laughs> you know? mm, okay. Hey, okay. you can think entirely of yourself. That's totally fine. Or you can, you know, make fun of me and and then, or you can criticize me. That's fine. Go ahead. And they go, oh, I just criticized you. <laughs> oh, ooh, I'm gonna have to wrap my head around that one. Okay, mm. that's a good move, man. <laughs> Somebody—it's like speaking another language. I swear. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it is. It's it, to me though. It's also again moving toward the ideal of that ancient saying from Europe, which is "iron fist with a velvet glove." Right. Okay. A very padded <laughs> glove that is invisible sometimes that you have no idea it's there. and it's okay though just to have the veneer and go okay yeah kind of like we just said okay okay that's insightful i appreciate the the minnesota nice lessons that you're giving me yeah i've had to struggle myself Uh, yeah (laughs) um can i switch gears a little bit on you yeah please so we were talking also the other night about um the role of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, kind of following my own personal understanding of that as a kid, uh, I assumed that that was something that was supposed to be there, that this semi righteous, semi graceful God, for some reason in his infinite wisdom, sought fit 
to put this deadly, awful tree in the middle of the Garden of Good and Evil and tell people not to go there. Uh, now that I see that, at least that part of the Bible, a little bit more metaphorically, and as an, as an aside, I've been noticing here recently that a lot of uh, liberal Christians and conservative Christians take certain parts of the Bible a lot more literally than others do. It's not just that conservatives are inerrantists and, and believe every word of the Bible, but that uh, on both sides you see a lot of you know cherry-picking sort of thing but um mm-hmm. anyhow i see it now more kind of metaphorically uh you know in in peter rollins terms as as, as the the object cause of desire that it's prohibited and so that is why you want to get it which is a massive massive macro metaphor for life and like we were kind of saying earlier that desire to pursue that which is prohibited or that which seems out of reach Always mm-hmm. wanting to chase after something that you can't quite read. A dog chasing a car sort of thing. But then you were bringing up the idea of the tree of knowledge of good and evil as an essential part of the ecosystem. First, I was wondering if you could elaborate mm-hmm. on that. And second, I was wondering um, how literal and, you know, maybe I should say how mythological do you think that is? Because mm-hmm. that leaves the door open for it being literal that got turned into more of like a legend or being, you know, something that was entirely met- metaphorical and and put there to help us learn a lesson. Mm-hmm. And I think it ties right in back to the last discussion that in any ecosystem, in any culture, in any social environment, there will be something harsh and dangerous, and it's good. So when you called it awful, I had a little response you know, internally, like, no, it was good. It was there. It's part of the beauty of the perfect environment. Is it there essentially just to participate in the exchanges, you know, of, of the, the planetary matter between different trees? Is that what you mean by part of the ecosystem? Or is there a metaphysical yeah. sort of dispersion of mm-hmm. the knowledge of good and evil, but it's kind of more of a slow thing rather than just eating into in, a bite of the fruit? Yeah, that's how I see it. It was to fall in the ground and be part of the nutritional value and a little uh, trace element within anything. And, you know, we can draw a line, I suppose, to metals, right? We need to have iron in our diet. Mm. Well, you know, you get too much, it kills you. And there's always something that you could get too much of. Oh, yeah. So first of all, I would say, okay, it's part of the ecosystem that's necessary for whatever nutrition, whatever is going on. We need a trace element. And it's also, I suppose, even to your dog analogy, you put a biscuit on a dog's nose and go, wait, 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 wait. And it learns discipline not to take that thing, but then to reach over and pull it off its nose and walk away. That would be cruel. So for God to be dangling this thing out there going, ha, 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 you can't have any. But that's not my way of seeing it. No, yeah. <laughs> Currently not mine either, but that's definitely how I saw it when I was a child. So, yeah, I like that yeah. insight. That's good. That's mm-hmm. good. Um, to what extent do you think that the tree being there is a metaphysical part of the metaphysical ecosystem of humanity coming to terms with itself and with its knowledge and its discernment? Uh, as opposed to it providing some sort of like vitamin Q, you know, or something like that that, that we needed uh, based on our our limited diet at that time. Well, good. We're now drawing this all together because even when we talk about iron and needing iron in your diet and being nice, but underneath that, having reality, to me, it, it's the powerful element of being real, yet it's in a trace amount so when we take it 
in, and again, speaking as a metaphor, when I think too hard or I open up the critical element that's really supposed to be under the covers, not openly, uh, just in your face, brash, hurtful. Uh, I'm sorry, can you give an example I, there? Sure. To Back to our earlier discussion for saying, hey, um, you know, if you want to just be loud and um, – and critical, you go ahead and be loud and critical. Right, right, right. I, I've just said you are being loud and critical without being uh, mean. <laughs> so there's a carrier element. So subconsciously, all of us are absolutely selfish. We're always yes. thinking about ourselves. Yes. And to me, for that to be undercover, underground, or subconscious, is it, it's an engine that's driving our behavior. We should be aware it's down there, but it should also be under it's just like a, a monster under the sea. It's down there. It just, if it rears its ugly head, though, we all get bitten hurt. Mm. So I think there's this undercover element uh, in everything that was the, metaphorically the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. I take a bite of it and go, hey, I'm naked and you're naked and we're not. That's not good enough. Sure, yes. Absolutely. I totally follow that. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry if I, if I missed this in there. But it, I was just wanted to clarify. So you think that it was both a physical tree, a literal tree, and a it served a meta, metaphysical function, sort of thing. Yeah, I'm simple and maybe simplistic, so I don't mind people saying, "Oh, it's it's a metaphor." Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's uh, metaphor. Yeah, sure. And I'm also simplistic in that I I don't see any reason that it couldn't have been, and therefore I take it as literal. Okay. Can I ask you a really, really silly, um, arguably sacrilegious question? Sure. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Go ahead. I'm sure. Go ahead. So this one's on me. If it is sacrilegious, it's not you. I'm asking the question. So So if if God's up there taking tally marks, this one doesn't go in your column. Okay. So (laughs) um, if it was a literal tree, you know, literal garden, literal Adam and Eve, first man, first woman, just two of them. Obviously, we've been over this before, you know, in multiple churches, multiple Sunday school classes. Um, to be fruitful and multiply, which is a straight commandment from God, they must, you know, uh, incest is inevitable there. Mm-hmm. You know, even even if... Even though she came from, uh, in in the literal reading, she came from his flesh, which sounds an awful lot like they might have had the same DNA, which off sounds an awful lot like they might have been twins. But uh, you know, let's say they're not. But they, she comes from him. They're they're there hanging out. They have kids. Okay, mm-hmm. those kids can either have sex with each other or sex with their parents. Mm-hmm. They're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. They have to keep on multiplying, and so. Lots of incest going on there, but it's one of those things where we kind of say, "Well, they had to do it; they had no choice. They had to be fruitful and multiply." Uh, it's just what it—it's it, what it is. One time, you know, one off sort of thing. But then in the New Testament, you know, Paul is it in uh, Corinthians, maybe talking about Thessalonians. I'm not sure. Uh, talking about a relationship between a stepmother and her stepson. And how even though that is a kind of almost a gray area in sense, you know, they're not blood relatives, but it's still, you know, considered uh, incest and that is condemned and that is that is wrong. If a rule is a rule, a law is a law, 
you know, in, in a kind of a more fundamentalist, legalistic standpoint, along with Genesis being entirely literal, then where's the reconciliation between um, Adam and his family's incest and the uh, New Testament and even Old Testament forbidding of, of incest? Yeah, and historically, here's where I'm wrestling with it with you because it cannot be simply dismissed. Uh, here's, though, my own reconciliation that the Old Testament law that, hey, don't go around marrying your sister and all that. But your cousin's okay. Yeah. But, yeah, I, get it. I think it was. Um, point would be, it, it was given at a time, and we know for a fact now, that if you practice that, it's not healthy for... Yeah, genetically. genetically. Yeah, you get, you know, the inbreeding and, and all these different, deformed, um, you know, physical traits. Point there, then, is, okay, you know what? Because if we do that now, we, let's not do that. That's kind of the Old Testament law. And here's the thing, though. The spirit of it is more important than the physical implication, I think. So if I have a relationship with someone that is sister, and I confuse that relationship with lover, that mm. it, it's a line that just it then ruins one or the other. Either I won't know how to deal with someone as sister or or I won't know how to deal with right, someone as lover. Right. And that's the logic. So are you saying that all laws have to have a uh, cohesive logic behind them? It's not just the letter of the law. Like with the whole, you can't just say incest bad. It's a case mm-hmm. by, everything's a case by case sort of scenario. Is that is that where you're going? Yeah, it, 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 I guess I'm saying that. Um, haven't thought through that way. Uh, but yeah, there's a, a reason for the rule is a simple way we'd say, right? Or there's the law and the law de facto and the law de jure and, mm. you know, um, so there's what was written exactly by the letter. Um, then there was the purpose of it. And then somewhere between those two, we get de facto how we you know, apply it. Mm, okay. From your perspective, would you say that part of the fall had to do with incest now causing and birth defects? Oh, interesting. Right. Could, could it be that? Yeah, that's a great resolution. Uh, because there are defects, there are more. There are multiplied in close relatives. Uh, yeah, thank you. I think you just solved it. <laughs> <laughs> I solved it for you because yeah, to me the whole me. thing's a big old metaphor. I'm a big, big fat yeah. progressive right. Christian over here. Yeah, and so in that time it was like. Uh, this one person is lover, and then you go, oh, this one person over here is sister, and it's a label that you then determines how you relate to that person. Okay. okay. And so if they quickly said, okay, you guys are married, forget the brother-sister thing, you're married now, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, then they have to, like, I mean, they've been brother and sister, or, or like, from birth, they're like, you guys are brother and sister. D- don't get too close. You might end up <laughs> screwing each other one of these days. Right, you'd have okay. We're we're revising history, maybe, but yeah, you have to say, you know what, Uh, boys over there, girls over here, and you're not gonna interact. (laughs) That's too funny. (laughs) You're gonna you're you're gonna be a couple miles away and have your own the guy tribe and the girl tribe. (laughs) (laughs) Got to got to breed them for breeding. (laughs) That's I guess. Yeah, it's too funny. Um. Can I take it in another direction? And if you want, if you don't want to go here, we can edit around it. Uh, but I was, I was, I'm curious 
I'm really curious about your current take on hell. Is that something you're comfortable going into? If not, we can always save it. Of course. Uh, That the reality of separation, going back to our earlier discussion in some way, that um, I want more than anything a sense of community and the three that I always talk about, you know, the nutrition of the soul is a sense of belonging, which is community or sense of camaraderie. And I also want a sense of control. Like I can make some decisions or get the thing I want, not just be dictated to. And then uh, a sense of accomplishment. Let me get out there. I even draw that back then to Genesis, you know, one and two, right? This is why we're created. So we need these things. Then um, the denial of all three of those is the experience of hell. Um, particularly that separation anxiety that I would say, okay, being separate from God causes anxiety, and that is hell. Um, Now, would would a good God go put somebody eternally in hell? No, I think hell could be eternal, and yet I think the part that is separated from God will go in there and get burned up. That's my current view. You're an annihilationist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Something that's been on, on my heart a lot recently, just trying to figure out uh, exactly where I'm at with all that, because there are a lot, there are a lot, lot, lot of passages, especially in Galatians, some in Luke, Mark, uh, just lines. And the kind of, this is what I was lo- alluding to earlier. These are the lines that progressive tr- Christians take literally, mm-hmm. that uh, more. You know, fundamentalist Christians and conservative Christians might, in a broad sense, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but might take as metaphorical or, oh, this means this, 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 and this. There's a lot of verses that say, you know, he who turns his back on Christ, I tell you, you know, every one of them will be saved. And there's all these almost universalist sounding, you know, and maybe reconciliation for that is a purgatory thing. I, I and and the references to Gehenna. Are you familiar with the term Gehenna? No. So so Gehenna is usually translated in the New Testament as hell. Hell is either translated from Hades or Gehenna. Hmm. And Gehenna was a valley where the kings would take their children to burn them alive at the stake. How gross, yeah. And that's what hell is always referred to as. And the agent in this, the causing force, was the father, the, the king, taking his children, his you know royal, royal children, to the stake to be burned alive. And that just, especially the fact that we translate as hell, it's like, is that my loving God? That's doing this, and it's presented as a negative thing. It's not like, oh, they had it coming, so we had to go burn them at the stake alive. Like, even if they freaking stole your car and wrecked it and ruined your whole life, and you know, like, I mean, hell, m- murdered a relative or something. Like, somehow you're gonna do some mental gymnastics to keep loving that person, you know? Mm-hmm. And just the idea of a god, a king, a father which are all, you know, synonymous with with deity, choosing to punish so harshly someone in that way, and then we turn around and call that hell. Like, I just, and, and, you know, verses that say all are one in Christ Jesus. We are all children of God. All of us are children of God. Sinner, 
slave, Jew, Gentile, male, female are all the same. And so I just have a hard time with hell. I wouldn't say I'm quite a universalist. I'm definitely an an inclusivist. But to me, it makes the most logical sense that all the bad shit you did to people gets done to you at at the very worst. And then what? You cease to exist or... I lean towards maybe you go to you, you go to heaven, you know, or if there's a purgatory or something like that. But this whole eternal conscious torment thing is just too much, especially it's when it's like right in front of you. There's a metaphor here. Uh, oh, translates to Gehenna. Let's look and see what that is. Let's look at the at the index or whatever here. Oh, it's a it's a place where kings took their children to burn them alive. Like, that sounds like, that is hell, right? Like, Yeah, that would not fit any scriptures that I know. That, you know that, whatever word they had, so words are meaningless, but they do have their root, and that's a horrible root. It shouldn't be the root of any interpretation, I don't think. So, um, right, there's an element in us that is descendant of being created in the image of God. And that element in us is also the part that goes, oh, you know what? I hate myself for being that way when I was that way I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, self-loathing is being burned at the stake mm. in the in salvation. I am saved. I'm being saved. Anyone who has any little smack of goodness or trace back to that, that part that is from God that cannot be destroyed, mm. um, you know. But but anything that's just a fluff, or like you and I have talked about those scriptures, or the chaff being burned yes, away, or the yes. you know the gold going through purification. Mm. That, to me, that's all right. Let's pass through purification, get rid of all that chaff, all that junk, and then wow, we're perfect and shiny. That that's what's going to live forever. Oh, live forever. Maybe you're not an, an annihilationist. Maybe you're something new. So you're yeah. so you're saying. The thing that is annihilated is the chaff, mm-hmm. and then what? I'll go to heaven. Are you? So you're a universalist. I'm a perfectionist. No, <laughs> purificationist. Uh, I lo- oh, purificationist. I like that one. So okay, let me ask you point blank. Yeah, sure. After this process, this burning away of the chaff, does everyone go to heaven? Right. So the question would be, can, is it possible for a human being to have zero of that which descended from God, any element of God in them? Okay. Um, I can imagine that it is possible that you become so absolutely corrupt, kind of like back when Noah's time. Every thought is so demented and twisted and ugly and horrible. Mm. If you've totally been eaten up by that, maybe there is nothing left. And so it's all I destroyed. I see. Okay, interesting. So that, um, for lack of a better term, evil core, mm-hmm. that um, change in nature from child of God to child of, I don't know. Satan. The, Satan, if you will. Um, maybe the mimetic Satan. Uh, mm-hmm. Then, so you're not born that way. It, it's like the old, you know, God gave Pharaoh's heart over sort of thing to where there's a transition because to me, being a child of God, there's nothing I could be the worst child ever, and I have been. But you still love me, and you still accept me. I'm still the prodigal son. 
you know, I can't imagine me doing something to where you, as a loving, you are such a loving father. And at the same time, you're human, you're imperfect. But you could never, ever, you know, you might even lie for me to keep me from going to prison or something. You know, you, you go through so many extremes just to protect me and go into debt and just help me out so much. Could you, as an imperfect father, see a perfect father choosing hell, choosing this, I mean, you got to punish, you know, what you reap what you sow sort of thing, but could you see a father really who has the ability to stop this from happening, to really send someone, you know, to to hell? Yeah, I cannot in that this is a God willing to lay down his own life to save the child, the children, that that is irreconcilable in my mind to go and Hey kid, you totally screwed up. Go burn in hell. Now, it, so he does everything selflessly, everything out of love. So any throwing people in hell is out of love, mm, like or else we don't know who he is. So what could it possibly be? Oh well, I hate myself. I want to burn that up. Okay, boom. There you go. You mm. got what you wanted. <laughs> oh, I like that one. Yeah. And, and it, as we were, you were talking. I was thinking, hmm, what if it could be? I'm sitting in hell and I'm happy because the part of me that I hate is being burned up. Yeah, like when I interviewed my friend Ed, he's like, you know, he's he's absolutely a follower of Christ, and he was like, man, you know, if God decides I gotta go to hell to learn a few lessons, had it coming, so it is. You know, I'm just I'm just so amazed that I was been able to be a part of this and had a conversation with God who explained to me why I have to face the consequences that I have to face. You know, and it was just it's such this different take on it from your everyday evangelical church. To where it's like we gotta stay away from hell. Are you? Are you? In, oh, we gotta stop them from going to hell. You know, it's just all about this. This, you know, punching your ticket, if, if you will. Yeah, and as you're saying that, I, I started feeling choked up. That okay, here's God going. Hey, man, uh, we gotta do something about this mess. You know what's in you right now. So mm. come on, let's go. And then he would jump with you. If he's going to throw you in hell, he's going to jump in there with you because that's what he did yes, on yeah. the cross. See, I uh, love that. I love that so much. But it kind of makes me have to ask if hell is separation from God in its essence, then how does God come up by your side and befriend you and hug you and join you during that process? Yeah, no. And, and God turned away from God. That's the, the paradox of Christ on the cross. Mm. It's inexplicable, mysterious beyond understanding. And, and it's necessary. There's no other way to deal with this, but to go, wow, it's, it's, it, it just makes no sense. And he did it anyway. Wow. Okay. So it's one of those. Have to leave that one a mystery until we think about it a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, that's it. That's a good one, though. I like that a lot. Do you want to take a, a look at your site? I've got it pulled up here. Oh, okay. It's quite, I'll be honest with you, quite a, quite a bit of information still. I'm having a hard time. My eyes are darting all over when I look yeah. at it. Just, just to be honest, yeah. just. Yeah. I, I love it. I love the content. Good. And I like the simplicity of the layout with the images and everything. I wish I could adjust the font size because you're right. It, the The balance of the human brain requires, as I'm trying to understand anyway, you know, this element of here's the art and here's the picture and here's the you know, visual and then here's some words over here. I don't have that yet. It's it's a step in the right direction maybe. I love what you have an image on here. I love what it is saying. But the thing is, it looks like a flow chart, so I kind of have to yeah. think, oh, where's this arrow going? Where's this arrow going? But I love it. says, you, arrow, impulse, which leads to reaction, 
which leads to venting, then you contemplate and respond. And I love that. I love that message. But having it be a flow chart with a little bit of geometry yeah. thrown in and, and, you know, some some big English words, you know, maybe write it. I don't know. Maybe write it for the layman. Yeah. You know, maybe dumb it down. Yeah. You know, even though obviously you're smart enough to handle all this, maybe. Mm-hmm. Dumb it down so an eighth grader can understand it. Then you're yeah, and I need <laughs> someone else's help to get there. This morning I cut out three or four words, so it's even simpler now than it was yesterday. Oh wow, no kidding! And so here was my one experience where someone helped me get to what you're describing, and that was doing a proposal for this, you know, four hundred million dollar um, contract that was a company was trying to win. Oh wow! And and so they you know, took us up to headquarters and we're sitting there and I say, well, here's how an organization works. They go, Ooh, that's messing a lot of flow and whatever. Right. Okay. So they, they assign a graphic artist to it. And I go, here's what I'm trying to say. Are you getting it? He goes, yeah, I'll draw that into a building and I'll make this layers of people interacting with each other. And you'll have a few words here and there. And I looked at it after it was done. I was like, wow. Yeah. It's a three dimensional thing. And it's more understandable. So, uh, yeah, I need a graphic artist to redraw that yeah. something artistic. Right. Because yeah. this is a great message. Mm. I'll just, I'm just being brutally honest. Yeah, it's just kind of hard to follow. Please do. I got to burn away that chap, man. <laughs> hey, hey, full circle. There we go. Um, so, yeah, you got a lot of good stuff on here. Is there anything in particular you want to look at, like the, the soul flow or the conflict or the theology area? We just covered the soul flow and then... Given the new format, I just adopted and I can't change. It appears the blogs, and so the first blog is um, is the whole pain topic that you and I talked through. So we already covered that. Yes. So we covered quite a bit of it. I, the one we haven't, and we even covered the whole nutrition of the soul in this discussion. We covered most things in that site. Wow! Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Unintentionally. Mm-hmm. You know? It's good. I, I was hoping just to say, can okay, we put this out there, and some people might need something and if they scroll down i'll have more and more entries that maybe one of the topics will grab you and then you go right. into it yeah and i think we need to get uh, molly she gave me permission to go on her facebook page and grab all the images where she's mountain climbing oh very so, cool beautiful shots oh my That's goodness she's such That's a photographer this is our cousin Molly that we're talking about for the for the listener. Yeah, Molly Brazier. It's just uh, every weekend is out somewhere in a beautiful burn. Yeah. But, you know, to put that there would maybe put the awe back into it. So mm. I'm an engineer. I'm all about the science of it, and I I need to be balanced out with someone who's got the awe and the beauty. Very cool. So, um, do you want to plug your site there? Do you, is there like an easy way to get to it or is it the, with, with all the digits and everything like right. that? Right. I haven't yet done away with the old. So okay. if someone goes to laytheology.com, L-A-Y theology.com, they arrive at that old page uh. and then the first menu item, the, at the top menu on the left, it says go to new page. Okay. That's where it'll lead you to the numbered site that I'm tra- in transition right now. Cool. Anything else you want to touch on? No, this has been really wide-ranging and in-depth and really good. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dad. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Appreciate your time. You too. Love you. Thank you. Love you. Bye.
Well, that was my interview with my father, Pops, Gregory Rowe. Hope you enjoyed it. We got into some uh, got into some subjects that I didn't really anticipate us getting into. I felt that was a really good interview. And uh, is it just me, or did Greg Rowe just become a universalist live on the air? I guess technically not live, but still. Did he candidly think through and arrive upon the conclusion that he's a universalist? Kind of sounded like it. I don't know. Who knows? Anyhow, um, you can always support me on patreon.com slash air of grievances. You can go to the Facebook. I have an official website now up. It is airofgrievances.com. That simple. And um, I want to remind you to support Revolution Church. You can go to revolutionchurch.com. Right now it's a Tumblr. Uh, I'm actually helping Jay put together a little bit of a nicer website for it. So, yeah, that does it for this episode. Um, And, oh, yeah, just because of all of the uh, requests I've been getting and everything, I'm going to go ahead and play for you guys the Pop Goes the Doctrine theme song, the the, uh, the sting for it, for that segment, even though that was more of an episode than a a segment. But I'm going to play that for you guys. Don't worry, though. I'm going to play it uh, in fast motion. So, we're going to finish out with that. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Love you. Around and around theology, the sky is redeconstructing. The stag decides to join in the fun. Up goes the doctrine.